You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. We come to um, Genesis 20, and Genesis chapter 20 and 21 form a unit. Uh, And in the middle of that unit, at the beginning of chapter 21, we have at last the birth of Isaac. Uh, But that's sandwiched between two two parts which speak of Abraham and uh, Abimelech. And so uh, this, this evening we're looking at the first part of this longer unit, which speaks of um, well, which is eight, um, Genesis 20, not Galatians 2, as uh, this is printed there. And so this follows on from um, the account last week uh, we saw of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. 
And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign for your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and the female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Or may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us. So here we are, Abraham again um, says to his wife, uh, his wife is his sister, again, Sarah winds up in the house of a tyrant. Again, the Lord steps in to intervene to deliver the promised seed. It is a, a repeated pattern. And uh, so we saw this similar account at the end of chapter 12. And for good measure, uh, Isaac does the same with Rebecca, which is over when we get on to Genesis chapter 26. Um, but as we'll see as we go on, there are, there are differences in the account. It's not just re repeated for no reason. When things are repeated, they're repeated for a reason. And Genesis 20 is all about uh, God delivering his promised seed. Delivering this, uh, the, the, the promised seed. God has promised that Isaac will be born. Um, and God is uh, stepping in to deliver this see this promised son. And here we see there's this, a struggle and fight. So uh, Abimelech moves in against Sarah. And uh, so right back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, 15, we're told that there'll be a struggle, a fight between the, the serpent, um, and it's Satan, and the woman. So the Lord speaks to the, the serpent, or at least the, the, the personification of Satan in Genesis 3, 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. And so we have uh, this promise of the seed which runs throughout Genesis, this promise uh, that a son will be born. Uh, but we also have uh, Satan trying to defeat and stop the promised son being born. And so here, we're at the very cusp of the conception and birth of uh, Isaac, and then we have this massive obstacle to this carrying out, this happening as Sarah is taken into the household, into the harem of a tyrant. And so we have this attack on the bride and then God's uh, deliverance. So in the first verse, we see that Abraham has been on the move again. Uh, verse 20, we say from there, Abraham's move. So Abraham had been living up by Hebron, the oaks of, of Mamre, above, um, above the plains. And uh, he journeyed towards the territory of the Negev, that's in the south, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. So he's living between these settlements. He's wandering from kingdom to kingdom. And he's near the, the southern border of the promised land, um, near the, the, um, the river of Egypt, the, the wadis of Egypt. 
And uh, why is he moved? Well, presumably this is connected with the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole part of the, the land being destroyed, and that great catastrophe as the smoke went up to heaven, and, and then uh, Abraham was living not so far from there. He moves, presumably because of that, but he's any, at any rate, he is there looking to pasture his flocks, and he sojourns in Gerar, a place which means a lodging place, which is ruled by Abimelech. And so he's, he's fleeing, he's looking for safety. In verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And you notice the account is just very compressed here. It's a single sentence because we've had this before. So we've, it's just a compressed account of something similar that's happened before. Well, why is it that Abraham says his wife is his sister? Well, we're not quite sure. Why would he do that? But the strategy seems to be that as her husband, he would be an obstacle to remove, but as her brother, he would by rights be her protector, and any suitors would have to enter lengthy negotiations with the brother, thus uh, protecting Sarah while they can make good their uh, escape. And it says later on he did this uh, in every place, so this was standard operating procedure. Um, so perhaps his strategy was wildly successful in some places, but in the two accounts we've read, it didn't seem to work out too well, and God steps in and has to bring about this uh, great deliverance. Um, and scholars and commentators, they tend to really hammer away at Abraham here for his cowardice, for his lack of faith, how he simply should have trusted God to keep his promises through this. Um, but I think we do have to remember that he had just been forced to flee a calamity, and here is this dark sort of tyrannical kingdom that he's got to navigate his way through. And I'd, I'd quite like to see some of these learned scholars actually have to take Abraham's place and try and guide their family through one of these dark places and see how firm their faith was. So uh, he's come, he's, he's got this, this uh, ruse of pretending Sarah is uh, his sister. We read, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. That's what tyrants do. They've got the power. This is sort of um, standard issue tyranny. He just uh, wanted Sarah. He's powerful, so he took her. Why does he want Sarah? She's over 90 at this point. Uh, is he wanting to form an alliance with Abraham? Is she still somehow very beautiful? We're not really told his motives, but behind the action of Abimelech stands Satan, who is at war with the seed of the woman, who does not want this promised child to be born. So Sarah now is separated from her husband. Any child that might be born will be Abimelech's. But God, we read in the next verse, um, God uh, came to Abimelech in a dream by night. So God then steps in. He acts to protect Sarah and to protect the promised offspring. So this, he comes to Abimelech in a dream. It foreshadows how God will speak to other tyrants in dreams, how he speaks to Pharaoh in a dream and later speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says to him, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she is a man's wife. And now, now Abimelech had not approached him. We learn later that he himself had been struck and the Lord had prevented him. And so there's this quite lengthy conversation between Abimelech 
and the Lord. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Notice he's concerned not just for himself, but for his people. Did he not himself say, she's my sister, and so on? So Abimelech did not know she was a married woman. He was not guilty of seeking to take Abraham's wife and seek to break apart this marriage. He was only guilty of sort of coming along, taking Sarah and just adding this woman to his harem against her will, which in his view is just totally fine, it seems. Well, then God says to him uh, in this dream, yeah, he knows that, he knows what's happened there. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And then verse 7, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And this is the, the first time in Genesis, that, or first time in the Bible, that we read of a prophet, and it's Abraham. Abraham is given that title. He is the, the prophet here, one who's in the councils of God, who speaks the very words of God. Uh, return it, that he will pray for you and you shall li live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So it's life or death, not only for Abimelech, uh, but all who are with him. Now, how will he respond to this? So far, he's acted uh, as the, the standard issue tyrant. Um, like, like Pharaoh of chapter 12. But here, as we move on, we actually see something different here, if we're sort of comparing this with chapter 12. We see really the, the beginnings of, of a transformation in Abimelech. We see the conversion of Abimelech, it seems. So verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. There is this, this fear of God. He's had this dream, he recounts the dream, and they are, are full of fear about this warning of impending judgment. So they're a bit like some other characters in the Bible. Remember the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, who heard this, this word that Nineveh was going to be overthrown, and he repented in sackcloth and, and ashes. Um, so he hears and he, he repents. He's very unlike... Uh, Lot's sons-in-law. Do you remember they were told of impending judgment coming upon the city? And they thought it was a joke. They just brushed this aside. They did not fear God. There was no fear of God before them. So here is this difference with Abimelech. There is this recognition uh, because of what's happened within his household, because God had struck them, that, 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 that God is to be feared and Abraham is to be feared. So there's this change, this transformation. Verse 8 really is the sort of heart or the hinge of the whole account. And so we move on to his questions in verses 9 to 13. He has three questions. He calls out to him, what have you done? And he starts out really just laying the whole of the blame upon Abraham, much like Pharaoh had done. But in verse 10, we have what I think is a more honest question. Abimelech says to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Why did you have to do this? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. They were fearful that Abraham would just, that Abimelech would just take everything, kill his wife, take his stuff. Or well, was that accurate? Was there any fear of God in the place? 
Well, there certainly was fear of God by the time the Lord has had this vision and the dream and by the time the Lord has acted in the way that he's acted. But was there fear of God at the beginning? Well, we don't, we don't really know, do we? But I think Abraham may have been, may have been right in his assessment. Uh, and that was what he's thinking anyway. There's no fear of God in this place. That's a reasonable assumption. So he's dealing with Abimelech now after God has revealed himself to Abimelech through his mighty power and through his action. And Abimelech now is treating Abraham uh, with greater seriousness, with greater weight. That was not the initial treatment, was it? He simply took Sarah and ignored Abraham. And so he comes on and, and then he, Abraham, verse 12, but such she is my sister, the daughter of my father. Uh, so Abraham um, he was the brother. He did have the duty to protect her. So Abraham was certainly not telling the whole truth. Um, it wasn't an outright lie. He was dissembling the truth here. So then we see Abimelech in his actions and in his words actually honouring um, Abraham and Sarah. Verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And you notice how this is different from Pharaoh as well. So Pharaoh, earlier in ch end of, uh, chapter 12, had said, Now go, go leave my land, get out, clear out. I don't want to see any more of you. But Abimelech is different. He actually wants Abraham and Sarah and their household to be nearby. He's recognised something about the power of God, and he's recognised something about uh, Abraham as, as the prophet, uh, and with this, and he, he wants them nearby. He knows that through Abraham being nearby, uh, that blessing is tied up with Abraham being nearby. So there's this difference there from the previous account. And I think it's um, an outplaying of Genesis 12, verse 3. Remember this initial promise to Abraham, where, he, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abimelech initially had dishonoured Abraham and ignored him and was at risk of being cursed. But Abimelech had then come to fear God and wanted to bless Abraham and so he was blessed. And so we see Abimelech wanting now to bless Abraham and Sarah. So verse 16, to Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given you uh, your brother. And he calls him a brother. I'm not sure, he, maybe being sarcastic, I'm not sure. Or, or whether he's now acknowledging that Abraham did, uh, that he was treated badly in the first place. But I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, the full, more than the full bride price. Uh, it's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. And then Abram prays to God and God heals Abimelech and uh, his wife and the female slaves uh, so that they bore children. And so blessing now comes to um, blessing now comes to Abimelech and the house and his household and his kingdom. For the Lord had closed uh, all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
So it ends with blessing for Abimelech and his kingdom. And so uh, the, the and it also ends with blessing for, for Abraham as he's now reunited with Sarah. And now the, the next scene is now going to be the, um, the, the birth of Isaac. And so we put these things together, we see the promised seed is under threat, then God acts to deliver this promised offspring out of, out of this threat so that there can be this fruitful, uh, God-fearing household. Uh, but in that, tied up with that, is blessing then coming to the nations, blessing coming to Abimelech. And so uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. And, and this, so we see God here, he's, he's delivering and protecting his people, but in order to then bless the nations, in order to bless the nations. And uh, Psalm, actually, Psalm 105, verse 12 to 15, is uh, this deliverance protection of God's people. This is sort of celebrated in the psalm. It really refers back to many places, but one of the places it refers back to is, is here. So it speaks of God's protecting his people. It says in verse 12, When they, God's people, were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, so think of Abraham wandering around, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. We see him rebuking Abimelech, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So here is the Lord stepping in to protect, to bless his people, with the result that, uh, in, the, in the end, that the nations are blessed. And we see this, this is a pattern here, which then just gets repeated throughout the scriptures. We, we see this pattern repeats uh, famously in the Exodus, as God's people are under threat and the, their offspring are under, under threat. So uh, Pharaoh is wanting to um, slaughter all the baby boys. And so all the baby girls then will grow up and be taken by Egyptian men. And so that the, the, the great promises of this, this great future, of this great nation are gonna be snuffed out. Um, so this great threat but then God comes in and brings about this great deliverance to his people, brings them up out of Egypt. Why? Well, that in them all the nations will be blessed. So that the Exodus motif is really foreshadowed here in miniature in this, in this story in Genesis um, 20. And we see that, that pattern just repeating through, through the scriptures. Think of how how God's people are under threat, think of the book of Numbers, and they're threatened, and Balak's trying to curse them, and then, then the Moabites are raised up, and, and, and sort of God's people are under threat, but then God's protecting and blessing his people. Ultimately, we see it fulfilled in Christ, don't we, as the promised offspring ultimately comes, and Satan is hell-bent on crushing uh, Christ um, just after he's born, and, and in the, the tyranny of, of Herod, who comes and slaughters them, and then God protects and delivers his Christ, uh, that the Messiah will come. Uh, and we see then it culminates at the cross as Satan tries to crush and destroy Christ, and Christ is crushed and destroyed, but in that, uh, the tyranny of Satan is broken as Christ dies and rises again. And God brings about this great exodus and deliverance of his bride, of his people, as his people are set free to worship him and uh, to, to praise his name. And so we see this sort of repeated throughout history. We see it repeated throughout church history as Satan tries to attack and destroy the church 
We see how God delivers and blesses his church, protects his people, and ultimately then comes to bring blessing to the nations. And so I think there's just encouragement here as we, we read the scripture. We see God's sovereign control of the kings of the earth. Sometimes they're like more like Pharaoh. Sometimes they're, they're sort of raised up in great pride and arrogance and then cast down to show forth God's power. Sometimes they're more like um, Abimelech. They're more like him and they actually they recognize uh, God's name and God's glory and they turn and fear God. And we see that working its way out through well, the pages of the New Testament, uh, but also the pages of, of church histories. We see someone like the, or some of the emperors who cast down the Christians and persecuted them, but then uh, Emperor Constantine, who, who came to fear God and came to, came to want to bless and honour the church and protect the church. And so as the gospel goes out through the nations, um, we see this working out in different ways. And it's interesting, isn't it, I think, how when Paul... Um, calls us or calls us to pray for kings and those in the high places and positions of authority, that um, Paul himself was um, very optimistic that the kings of the earth would turn to the Lord. You think about um, him before King Agrippa, and he's witnessing towards King Agrippa, and Agrippa says to him, look, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul is sort of expecting he knows that there'll be those who persecute the church, but he's expecting that there'll be these other responses as well. And so we regularly pray for the persecuted church, and we know that there are those who cruelly oppress the church, but there are also many leaders that, that God raises up who actually come to fear the name of the Lord. And so partly as we pray, we can, have a, we can be tempted to have a very pessimistic view of the world as we, we think of I don't know, aggressive secular humanism and all the sort of leaders of the, the world gathering together against the Lord and against his Messiah. But actually, I think Paul has this, it's realistic, but a more an optimistic view that actually God is at work uh, in and through his church and he's, he's at work in the kingdoms, in the nations of the world. And even as we pray for the persecuted church, we pray for their relief, for their deliverance, for their protection, for their help. But also we pray with the expectation that God is at work in these societies, that God is at work changing the hearts of, uh, of rulers and leaders. And we've seen that in somewhere like uh, the Sudan, where there was such bitter and terrible persecution of believers under, under Sharia law in the, in the late 80s. And early 90s, but then there was a, a, change, a change of law as, as some of the, the leaders recognised actually they wanted to have the, the Christian communities in their midst, a bit like Abimelech recognised he wanted to have Abraham in his midst. And so there are cultures which then um, move through a period of persecution to a more peaceful time and God establishes and blesses his church. And we see that uh, around the world. So in, in a strange way in these verses, it, it foreshadows uh, many of these things. It foreshadows uh, the, the giving of the gospel and the, and the progress of the gospel through, uh, through the world. And so I think in response to this, it's just an encouragement for us uh, to pray, to pray um, that the Lord would um, deliver, deliver us from evil. Uh, Satan attacks not only, uh, well, he attacks the church, he attacks Households and marriages, doesn't it? We seem attacking a marriage here. So we need to be praying for ourselves, for our households, for our church, that the Lord would deliver us from, from evil, deliver us from, from the evil one. And so there's that great 
uh, call to, to pray, but also there's this note of hope as we see God's great purpose to bless the nations, um, even as we look forwards to that great final deliverance when the Lord finally comes, our great saviour, and brings about that final exodus and our final liberation. Well, Genesis 20, let's uh, turn to God and pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.